This is Melissa Hale Spencer at the Altamont Enterprise, and we have two really exciting guests today. I just want to tell our listeners how I came upon them. In the hurly-burly of the Altamont Fair, with all the noise from the midway and the neon lights, there was this oasis of calm and education. At the gazebo in front of the Flower and Arts Building were Eric Marzak and Dawn Standing Woman playing, Eric playing flutes he had made with Native American melodies. And as Dawn told a story about a loon, I could have sworn I heard one as he was playing his flute. So welcome. And we are just eager to find out about each of you individually as well as a couple. And I know from a brief conversation with Eric that he's actually of Polish and Ukrainian descent. Mm-hmm. Well, Don is of Mohawk descent, but he, Eric, has embraced a Native American philosophy. And I'd like to start with a story you told me as a child looking at the polluted river in Cohoes, where you live, and what you told your father. Oh, yes. Uh, I was, it was before kindergarten, so I was only probably three or four years old. I remember standing on the bridge there looking at the Mohawk, uh, and uh, it was running with different colors from all the industry in Cohoes, uh, the textile industry, and it was running with dyes, and my father had told me there's not many fish in the river, and I remember looking at him and, and, and really being sad about it and looking at it and said, Dad, water's not supposed to look like this. And when I get older, I'm going to get the people that, that did this to the water. I made a vow then. And, and I've always been, you know, then, then as I was growing up and the, the uh, water standards were getting a little stricter and the mills closed down, the river started having fish in it again. There was actually striped bass running up at one time. I remember my father being so delighted because I brought the fish home. I said, never seen a fish like this. He said, striped bass. So the river actually did clean up quite a bit. And um, uh, that's what, you know, sewage and industrial waste. Of course, nowadays, some of the poisons are a little more insidious, you know, like agricultural waste and things like that. You don't see it in the water like like you do the sewage. But, but the end point to the story yeah. is you kept your vow. I did. Tell I, us about I, I that. I worked in the New York State Health Department uh, for 32 years. And uh, I worked in uh, mass spectrometry, so I was I did some of the first samples in the Hudson River uh, for PCBs and the Love Canal when that broke. I handled some of the first samples, and um, about halfway through my 32-year career. Um, I realized, I go, wait a minute, I kept that promise. I went after the people, you know, GE, whatever, um, and uh, I kept that promise. I went after the people that made the water polluted, at least, you know, the ones that were still around that that, that could be, uh, you know, uh, mitigated and litigated. And, uh, you know, I'm rather proud of that work. And uh, Well, you should be. And tell us a little about your life philosophy and how the Native American traditions from all across the country and even world, it sounds like, yeah. are part of your your view of life. You know, it's not even so much Native American. It's um, first people, first people anywhere well, probably embraced that. They knew that nature was part of their life. They were in the web of life. And what you did to the environment, you did to all things, you know. Um, I think there's a basic philosophy. You can even look it up on the Internet, the Native American Code of Ethics, which is kind of a compendium of all the uh, the ideas that they put forth. And they're very common with first people everywhere. That's to be good to the land. You know, it's basically a set of laws, you know, that helps civilization and groups of people maintain. 
you know, and uh, so I've, I've you know, th- I mean, just simple things, you know, not to hurt your neighbor, you know, not to kill an animal disrespectfully. You know, you take it respectfully as part of your food chain. And, and you, you, you know, a lot of people say, well, you guys are tree huggers or, you know, you worship nature. Not worshiping. It's, it's the, the, the ability to understand you're part of it, that you're, 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 you're in this beautiful symphony of, 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 uh, of life, you know. What is life? So it, that, that embrace those principles. Yeah. And now, Don, this was part of your tradition. Can you tell us a little about your growing up and how you came to embrace the Mohawk part of your heritage? Well, growing up, we knew that we had Native blood in our family, but no one would talk about it. It was like admitting that you were part black um, because you would be treated less than. You would be looked down upon. So... My elders, when I was young, would say, no, no, we're clean. We, we, we don't talk about it. But there were people that knew it was in the family. So it wasn't practice, a way of life. I didn't get to learn from my family or my neighbors about, we'll call it the red path. So how did you personally come to follow the red path? So what caused you I had to this embrace this? great need in me to know more, to find out more, to live that way. And I read every book I could get my hands on. But there's just things you can't find out in books. And back in the early 80s, I went to my first Sun Bear Medicine Wheel gathering. And there were many elders there, and there were many teachers there and workshops and ceremony and I just embraced it, and I made sure that I went annually, but in the meantime, connected with other teachers who I could meet with and do ceremony and learn more, and it just became more and more a way of my life. And I know um, your husband mentioned just this past week you were in the Adirondacks doing a ceremony. Can you just tell us a little about what what that was? Um, It's called the Vision Quest, And the vision quest was usually when a boy reached puberty, sometimes girls, and they would go off on a mountain and sit on their blanket, protected by their tobacco prayer ties, and no food or water for several days. And they would pray and cry for a vision, a vision or a dream, some guidance. Um, So this was done up in the Adirondacks on a lovely island in the middle of a lake, And I wasn't questing. I've quested other years. Um, But I was supporting the camp for the questers who were what we call out on their blanket. That sounds like quite an experience. It was. So how did the two of you get together? Is there a story there? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, Eric makes and plays the flutes. And in the Native tradition, the flute for the man was a courting tool, where he courted a woman that he liked. Um, A young man would go make a flute, and he would come up with his own song, which was usually quite plaintive and whining and, and crying that, oh, I need you, I want you. And this young man would go away from a certain woman's lodge that he had his eye on, and he would play maybe in the woods or out of sight. Um, maybe the girl heard other tunes, too, from other young men. 
and she would get to know who was playing which tune. If she was interested, she would step outside of her lodge and be under the cover of her blanket, but, but the young man would know that she was interested. And he would play more and play more, and he would come every night, and maybe he would play other tunes too, like I Can't Stay Tonight or um, I Have Something Else I Have to Do uh, or maybe a happy song. And um, more and more the girl would show herself from her lodge. At some point, if she was very interested, she may take the blanket off her head and expose her face. Should she get to the point where she opens her blanket, that invites the young man over to her to get under the blanket with her. And then it was a done deal. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Eric, that's the story of the courting flute. And um, I knew Eric from powwows, Native American festivals. We were both vendors, and I was a dancer, and he was a crafter, and um, we just knew each other. But at some point... We both became available, and I had a flute that was broken, and I brought to him to repair. And um, we reconnected over that. So it really hearkened back to mm-hmm. this to the courtship flute. ritual with and, the flute. And, and the flute that she had broken happened to be um, one of my, my teachers. Oh, my on goodness. How to make the flute. And so, a matter of fact, a couple of weekends ago, we went to visit the, one of my other teachers, Hawk Ron Henry's from Maine. And we pulled the flute out. We brought the flute to show him. And it, it was his t- t- teacher as well. And uh, he, as soon as we took the flute out of the back, he goes, oh, this is a Hollis Little Creek flute. And so we told him the story. So we did it. We did that very same thing, but in a more contemporaneous uh, setting, you know. So it wasn't a blanket. It was a dress. And, it was, <laughs> you know, and, and she had come to my first concert that I played, my first debut playing flutes. Um, because I'd been a guitarist and playing violin and keyboards, and then somehow I I went to Maine to learn how to make flutes for my friend. And next thing you know, you're making fifty or sixty flutes a year, you know. And and I didn't ask for that. It's like the, the people demanded of you because I just went up there to make a few for my friends, and it it, it grew and grew and grew. So even now, I'm teaching flutes like uh, flute making classes at the Unitarian Church in Schenectady or at Tom Porter's uh, Mohawk community out in Fonda. We have a class coming up in October, well, a flute-making class. So uh, we get to you know have other people enjoy that. But it was a courting flute. It really oh, worked as a courting flute. that's just amazing. So who yep. was this man in Maine that you learned to make flutes from? Uh, Hawk Ron Henrys. He's a Nipmuc Anishinaabe descent. Nipmuc is like a central uh, Massachusetts tribe. Uh-huh. Uh, they were very good agriculturalists and everything, uh, but they were, there were several massacres in Massachusetts over the in, in the early years. And uh, but Hawk Ron Henry's, my, my good friend David Fine said, come on up and this guy will show us how to make a flute. And we literally lived it for a whole week in this teepee. And I came out and I knew how to make flute. So, so tell us, he has stretched in front of him these beautiful, even if they weren't musical instruments, they're just works of art. They have carving yeah, yes. and just kind of describe to us how you make a flute and if the ornamentation has any meaning or the wood is a certain kind for sound or anything about making a flute mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well you know um, it's basically uh, they're, they're not so much a flute but a w- technically they're a whistle um, a flute would you have to create the embouchure the stream of air with your lips like an orchestral flute you mm-hmm. know a metal metal orchestral flute these are really really whistles these are more um, related to like an Irish 
tin whistle or whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call it. So there's a mechanism that actually blows the air over the embouchure hole. So you don't have to have a really good lip. You just blow on them and, and and the music comes out. The many times the creatures like here I have a main whelk shell that I, uh, and a little snail there. Um, other times I, I'll carve. People will ask for a hawk or some effigy or fetish, as you might call it, uh, that they might be connected to. Like when I gave hawk, his, I made a hawk for uh, a hawk's flute out of a piece of pearwood he gave me, and on it I put an otter, and he was excited uh, to see it. He says, "I had a dream. There, I actually had it, not a dream. It's actual." He said, "I was fishing by the water, and an otter actually came up to me and." spit in my face <laughs> so then the otter was facing him on the flute and everything you know and i did not know that so it was just i mean a, a fantastic coincidence and i've seen that happen many times but i did also learn from paul thompson navajo out in albuquerque and he taught me uh the western style flutes and the different scales that they have um it's a it, um, the woods are 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 it could be something something special i've had people bring woods and they said you know my father passed a couple of years had this beautiful piece of mahogany you always want to do something special with so he says can you make a flute for me of course we can and that's got some significance or some memories to it it's a father's wood he can always every time he plays you can think about your father you know uh and i, I do the same thing I, I i see images when i play like that you know and you try to get emotional and put that emotion into it because I really do look at music as a language you know it's often called the language of the creator and uh, so the woods the woods aren't all that important it just it it has some significance to you Mm -hmm. Uh, you're drawn to it this one's made out of poplar this one's made out of black walnut this one's that piece of mahogany my my dad was always saving for the special project so I honor him that's like the second flute I ever made so I can think about him when I play it you know so it it, is different some people will come up and say can I can you make the fetish a whale I have this 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 connection with whales and I just love whales or a seal or whatever you know hawks and and things like that Uh, or a frog I've done even frogs on there and uh, whatever people you know drawn to so how long does it take to make a flute? Believe it or not, about two hours. Oh, I don't believe it. I do not believe not it. The time These are works of art. Up. Oh, my goodness. But, but yeah, and, and uh, you know, but the, it, it's, it's roughly about two hours because once I grab the piece of wood, I, once again, more contemporaneous uh, setting, I, I actually do use a power tool to make the flute in two halves. Mm-hmm. They're glued back together to make the, the hole. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to take a piece of wood like that and, and bore and a straight, straight hole. Yeah. Um, you know, in the old days, they they would often pick uh, woods like elderberry or sumac, which has a pith in the center, mm-hmm. and then they can actually burn a hole through it and carve it through because you've got a kind of a start on it, you know. Uh, so there, it's it's. Uh, but I once again, I after that, once I do the glue up and do the uh, router to make the hole and glue it up, it's done with hand tools. After that, there's no other power tools that hit it. After that, it's uh, I use a hand hand plane, small hand plane to round them out. A lot of people will say, "Oh, you look that's so rounded. You make it on a lathe." Uh, and I don't make them on a way. Every stroke, and it's literally hundreds of strokes to get that wood off. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about who I'm making it for, who we're going to honor with this. Thank you for giving me the knowledge to make this flute. Thank you, creator. You know, thank you for giving me my next breath to play the flute. You know, it's constantly grounding me when I work with these things. The elders told me when I was learning this, and Hawk County said, if you're not feeling good that day, if you've got some problem and you're angry or you're anxious about something, do not work the flute. Don't put that stuff into the flute. Just put love into the flute all the time. So, you know, you got to do what you love and love what you do. So that's that came to nice. the flute part, you know. So everyone's, you're going to see 
everyone's different. I do not make two flutes the same. Everyone's different either the way it's sculpted or whatever you want to call it, you know. Well, we would love to hear you play a little, but first I want to ask a question you can both be thinking about while you're playing, which is both of you have mentioned Native Americans or elders or people you've learned from that seem to be spread all across the country. Oh, yeah. And I'd love to hear about that kind of network and how how you access each other and um, what it means to you. I think once you take that, once you take the step to go on that path, as Dawn said, the red path, yeah. these people come to you. Um, there was a... Uh, there's a quote by a philosopher that said something like, when the time is ripe, when the idea is really ripe, things come. When you make that commitment, the, the, the universe provides you with the connections and materials that you need once you make that commitment. And I found that so true. It really so true, and I had so n- tribes that were once at war with each other. The, these descendants yeah, are all I mean, in it together. It, it and, wasn't always a pastoral setting. You yeah. know? I mean, even the, the name the the, uh, the name for the Mohawk, the word Mohawk, is an alliteration of the word Magua, which means man eater, and that's mm-hmm. what some of the southern uh, tribes in Connecticut and would would, would call the uh, Mohawk man eaters because mm-hmm. they're you know it's uh, but it, it, it's historically that's been proven and what. Uh, you know, once the great peacemaker came and gave us gave the basic laws on how to conduct ourselves in a civilization, um, you embrace those laws, and so the great the great peacemaker did that. And you, you your connection uh, happens. My connections, um, because of going to the medicine wheel gatherings, I met teachers from all around the country, mm-hmm. and um, and they in turn would have ceremonies where they lived, and I'd be invited to. And there is quite a network. Um, we connect by um, email. <laughs> we connect by phone. We see each other in person when we do attend um, sacred gatherings. Is there resentment ever because you, for instance, are not from, you know, by birth? From a particular uh, well, let's tribe? Look, for instance, uh, Tom Porter up at Fonda at the Mohawk uh-huh. community up there. Tom Porter's uh, spiritual leader. He moved down, um, and the original uh, form of Kanajahari is Kanajoharege, and uh, it means the clean pot. Uh-huh. Like a, and it's like a fresh start. So he came down to get away from the gambling and, and whatnot from up at the, some of the reservations, and and um, uh, he it took a long time. It took me almost like. I don't know, eight, nine years to actually gain his trust. Mm-hmm. And now we're really good friends, and uh, he shares so much with everybody. And that's a good place. If people want to, Tom, I'm going to push Tom here because Tom has programs. If you go to mohawkcommunity.com, you'll see he has some programs, drum-making classes. You can make a beautiful Native American drum. He'll serve traditional foods there and everything. And uh, <clears throat> people really need to support Tom there. And um uh, he'll he, he'll have teachings. A couple of weeks ago, he was talking about um, the philosophy of Handsome Wake. Uh, um, I believe Seneca Man, I believe, and uh, Handsome Wake uh, was at a time when uh, there was a lot of alcoholism just starting up, and you know, pe- the, the, the white people were giving those. Uh, bad gifts to them but he he addressed those problems and and he had a whole separate philosophy so that's the handsome lake um but tom if you go to tom's you know he'll he'll teach he has a strawberry festival every june and uh, you'll hear the mohawk he does mohawk language classes i attended that last uh last year was a two-week uh intensive mohawk language it's a class. very difficult language isn't it yes and they have yes. a gift shop and a bed and yeah. breakfast and he's quite open to 
teaching. teaching. And, Great. Yeah. Well, we would love to just hear you play a little bit, if you sure. could. Um, and sure. tell us what it is you're going to be playing. Uh, I'll, I'll do one round of the Zuni um, uh, call to sunrise. Um, a very important part of the day uh, when we get a chance to thank the Creator for another day. The sun's coming up, which lights all the things on the earth that we see. Um, <clears throat> and and it's just a it's a it's a sweet song. This was uh, actually um, normally these things are handed down in the oral tradition. So you know you'd have to be in the right place to learn these songs. But luckily in 1951, um, uh, Mr. Chester Mahudi, a Zuni uh, native, recorded this, and that I picked that up because I didn't have the or I didn't have access to the oral tradition, mm-hmm. but the recording. So this is this is I'll do one round of the Zuni Sunrise song. That's a prayer. That's a language. That's the language of the Creator. We thank Him for another day. Wow. I <laughs> kind of lost my speech after that one. <laughs> Good, well, it worked. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Well, I'll, I'd like to hear a little from you, Don, about how you come up with your stories. And both of you, what it's like. Here you are, for instance, at this hurly-burly Altamont Fair, and you, you kind of put a tent of quiet over the listeners we were all just transfixed for what was it maybe an hour and how do you reel people in with those stories and how do you learn them and tell them the way you do well I think everybody likes stories not just children and um there's an importance to stories stories were told to everyone to know their history to know important things that happened um, for lessons to be learned. Some were just for fun. So we have this, like you said, nice little oasis at the fair, and it seems like just once we start, that's what happens. It draws people in, and they sit, and they're quiet. And between the flute music and the stories, they're entranced. I learn stories from books, and I learn stories from listening to other storytellers. Um I enjoy telling stories. Do you have, of all the many stories you tell, do you have a favorite or one that stands out as particularly important for you? I don't. I guess it depends on my audience, whether it should be a children's story or a little more adult story or a funny story. It depends on the mood. Um, Sometimes in the audience, children will get a little rowdy and start running around when I'm telling a story, and... It's time for Eric to play the flute, and that calms them down. (laughs) And vice versa. Sometimes people um, have heard enough flute, and then it's time for a story. 
Yeah, well, it, you two complement each other. Is that just spontaneous, or do you rehearse this? In other words, like you'll play what sounds like a loop. Will she uh, loon? Will she's telling about a loon, or the, just the drum beat that you kept going as um, she was talking? Do you rehearse these together? No, no we no. don't rehearse. Not at all. It's, it's very spontaneous. Oh my! You just kind of work that well together. It works very well. Yeah. 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 We've been doing schools. You know, we go to schools. Um, we've done Bernox, Westerloo, Dwayne's and whatnot, and we go up there pretty regular, and it's incredible. These kids are, are really impressionable. I think we were second or third graders, and um, we had told them a few Mohawk words. And some of these kids were already in high school. They passed us in the hall. These were, these were kids that attended these classes early on, ago. and they would say, Sego, Sego. They'd say, Sego <laughs> to us in Mohawk, and they, they remembered it. You know, and that's like, you know, no, that's four or five years ago. And they remembered how to say hello in Mohawk. Isn't that right? So we know we made an impression on them, you know, and that's what we, I think that's what we strive to do is let people know that there's a quiet part of civilization that you can still enjoy, you know. And I was going to say the one thing I want to bring up about the stories, too. There are sacred stories, which Dawn doesn't have permission to tell. Or even uh, uh, Kay Owen, one of the great storytellers, uh, she's from the Saratoga Way, Yuna Dewas is her uh, Mohawk name, and she's a very good storyteller, but she has to get permission from the elders to tell certain stories. Uh, some of them are sacred stories that are not shared with so other people. So the sacred stories are used for what purpose and what Ceremony. setting? They're told in ceremony only. Yes. I, I feel that any story that's in print, is I can safe to safe, safely tell, yes. Well, um, tell us a little about powwows, because that must be a very different kind of setting than, say, going into a school where no one has any right. context. Right. Um, um, there are powwows and there are festivals, and around here we have mostly festivals. Powwows are a little more competitive, where dancers come from all around the country in the regalia and compete for prizes. Mm-hmm. What we have around here are traditionally festivals mm-hmm. or gatherings. Um, we will have the big, big drum and the players and singers on that. We will have a dance circle um, with dancers in regalia. We have vendors selling their wares. We have crafters, native and non-native. Um, we have animals. We have storytelling. We have... Uh, a native village and yep. some archaeology. It's just a fun two days, Saturday and Sunday usually. And are they and mostly open to Native the public. American? Oh, it is. Oh, that's right. And they're open hands. to the yeah. public, yes. Mm-hmm. They're not private. Our probably last for the area this year will be coming up in a couple of weeks, the weekend after Labor Day, September 9th and 10th, right here in East Greenbush. And it's the annual gathering of the tribes at Brown's Farm, and it's going to be on Luther Road, and it's only $5 admission, and it's really a really fun day and a nice way to touch tradition and to learn some more and to see some of the Mm -hmm. wonderful things that are made. Now, you mentioned before you got together that you were a dancer. Tell me a little about what the dance, what, you know, what that means to you and what that consists of and you mentioned regalia for the dancers what is what is that regalia is their dress okay um and there are different types of dress um i'm what they consider a skin dress i dress in the very old tradition of deer skin and elk skin and uh, whatever natural skin there is some of the girls dress in what's calico 
which is the cotton print that they started getting when the Europeans first mm -hmm. made contact here. Um, we dance to the beat of the big drum and the singers. We dance in a circle around a fire, and our footsteps match the drum beat for the women. And it's a prayer. It's a prayer to Mother Earth, and our feet touching the earth is considered as sacred. It's a very, um, it's not solemn, but we don't speak when we're dancing, and we just go around the circle for the length of the song, whereas the men will dance different songs sometimes. So the women dance as a group. Yes. And then the men dance as a group. And, you we, don't have, dance and as... we do dance together. There oh. are Yes, and there are social dances where we actually pair off with a partner, male mm -hmm. or female. Um, but the men will enact maybe a hunt or a certain animal, and they dance around and hop around and twirl around whereas the women don't unless they're doing a shawl dance, and then they spin around with the shawl. And it's just really wonderful to see. It sounds like it. Tell us a bit about your dress. I mean, where do you get skins these days, and who sews them? To um, There are local leather um, dealers in the uh -huh. area, since we're so close to Johnstown, Gloversville, where the leather mills were. Um, we're able to get any kind of leather, um, and I have a woman locally who makes my dresses. I don't attempt it myself. And my favorite dress is my summer white deerskin dress with lots of fringe. Oh, my goodness. And the fringe sways to the music and when you walk, and it's supposed to represent the grasses and the breeze on the prairie. Nice. Oh, very nice. Now, you know, there is a distinction, once again, between the festival and the power. The powers are a little more... Uh, rigid. There's protocol. Um, there's certain things that can and can't be done. Um, let's, for instance, uh, I, I have not witnessed one, but uh, if somebody avoids the protocol, uh, like a woman's supposed to have a shawl, I believe, when they're dancing, you're supposed to have a shawl over them. And a lot of times, if they break that protocol, they're in a real, real sophisticated powwow, one that's really done by protocol. The, the uh, firekeeper will come and actually pour water on the fire. The powwow is done oh at that point. That's Very how strict, strict it is, yeah. yeah. And or if uh, I've been to a powwow where uh, a, tra a traditional full blood man lost an eagle feather off his hair, it landed on the ground. The dances are stopped. The elders come in. They smudge the area, you know, with different uh, sages or tobacco offering on the ground. The man now has to hand that feather to somebody else. He has to pass that feather on. That feather is no longer. It's considered an incredible dishonor to have the feather fall, the eagle feather fall on the ground. So these are, you know, I mean we wouldn't think of those things normally but that's part of that protocol that's that incredible amount of respect that goes into that and uh you know even like the fire keepers have protocol if i've, I've seen um i've seen one of the grandmothers a fellow grabbed a piece of wood to go into the fire and there were ants crawling on it mm -hmm. that piece of wood does not go into the fire there are living things on that piece of wood that's set aside and let the ants do what they have to do you know so that that respect is carried on in an intense tense way at, at, uh, at the real powwows and, uh, so as the two of you go about your everyday life, and here you are in a modern world, although I, I know you don't use cell phones, nope. but how do these ancient beliefs work in a modern world? How, um, not, not when you're teaching or performing, but just in your everyday life. Mushroom chicken. I'm, I, think, I think of the word spirituality. 
And mm-hmm. that never leaves me. Mm. That's my connectedness with everything. That's where I become a part of it. I become a part of nature, uh, the sacred hoop, the circle that we all belong to. In the Lakota Sioux language, they say metakwiasin. Metakwiasin means all my relations or all my relatives. And it doesn't just reply, apply to the humans. It applies to the critters, the four-leggeds, the winged ones, the swimmers, the trees, the rocks, the water. They're my relatives. They're my relations. I live here on Mother Earth and share my space with them. I wouldn't be here without them. And, and there's that connectiveness. I try to be in nature as much as I can. When I'm in the car or in the city, I still see nature. I respect the fact that we all share this earth, and it reminds me to respect everyone and everything. Metakwiasin, we're all one family. That's so weird. And in a practical way, in a practical way, we keep that connection. Like even when I go home, I got to cut up May apples so I can make May apple jam. I've got a big. I'm waiting for her to ripen. We go out. Dawn goes and she's she goes. Oh. Two, three days are gone by. It's nice and moist in the woods. It's May. It's Cinco de Mayo. That's what she goes by. It's time to go out and look for the morel mushrooms. You know, so we dry the mushrooms and we eat these, you know. And every once in a while, I might get a trout and then the vegetables that we grew in our garden. I go, Dawn, look at everything on this plate we provided for ourselves. We were not so much a burden to nature, were we? You know, we, 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 we didn't take her down. We built her up. You know, and we re- and and that food you eat that food it feels so you know it it, it goes right down to your core you know because you have provided it your hands mm-hmm. your the thoughts just watching the weather watching you know where we get our clues from the weather as to when to do this you know even now the May apple is incredible and it's that endless gratitude that we try to carry as soon as the sun rises it's thank you for this day thank you that the sun came up again. Thank you for the clean water that we have. Thank you for this food and nourishment. Thank you for the beauty that we see every day. Thank you for another day of life. Thank you for the laughter. Thank you for my kind neighbor. It's really about gratitude. Well, on that lovely note of gratitude, I'm afraid we're going to have to end our podcast, but we'll carry that thought. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful. Yeah.